Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and DIY barbecue, question mark. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Doman And Stephen Craig. This is episode 336. Um, before we jump right in, uh, I've got two, two announcements. Uh, go to macfab.com slash jobs if you're looking for a job and want to work for Macrofab. Um, bunch of engineering, programming, accounting, like any kind of job you can think of is in there. Um, we're not looking for just engineers. And then also check out our Slack channel, macfab.com slash Slack. And um, ah, third thing, I guess. If you're interested in watching Stephen and I's faces talk, Check out twitch.tv slash macrofab, 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Um, we usually go live around that time, and uh, we record this live now. So I, I just checked in our general channel in Slack. We're at 687 people, so let's uh, let's get uh, a handful of you guys to get us up to uh, 700. That would, and and of that 687, there's, there's a lot of people who are active, so come join the Slack channel. Yeah, the hive mind. <laughs> i've asked the hive mind a few times actually that's sort of become a thing in our slack channel if you have an engineering question you could say hey hive mind and and y- you will almost guaranteed get some kind of answer i'm not gonna say it's it's perfect but you'll get an answer you get five of them yeah right and they'll, they'll be different <laughs> well it's because every it's the thing with engineering you know you you, you pull from your experience well, and your true. background yeah. on how to solve problems. Well, and you um, pull very deeply from opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing how engineers are thought of this like introverted group, but like they're very opinionated people. Oh, hundred percent. For being something, it's like for being someone who like uses math to derive answers and that kind of stuff. Just because. You, Two plus two equals four doesn't mean your opinion's different, though, about that. What that answer four means? Well, I think I think one thing that's that's maybe we're attracted to it as engineering, the engineering brain or mind or whatnot. But the just it's drilled into your head in school. It's funny because you kind of have to not unlearn this, but in school they teach you like there is a right answer, and it's just up to you to to get to it to either get to it or discover it or whatever. Uh, and you, you kind of have to unlearn that a little bit after school, but, but I think that feeds the engineering brain. And so like when it comes to opinions, like when some, when something up shows up that you have an opinion on, you're like, well, there is a right answer and I will let you know it. <laughs> I will let you know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. well, um, speaking about opinions, uh, so <clears throat> last the last two weeks, I believe, I, I've been talking about um, a project that I've been working on, the U-Tracer V6, which is a replacement to my old U-Tracer, which that itself is a uh, vacuum tube tester. Uh, like, it was like a version 3 plus? Yeah, th- well, I don't know. Like They've gone through so many variants, but you can only buy the 3 and the 6, but there's different like flavors of the 3 and the 6. Mm. I guess in terms of like what... The, the all the different variants are prototypes that the original designer made and in fact if you're interested there's an entire blog of how the entire thing is designed and like it is like hundreds of pages long and it's 
it's amazing read. It's really, really good. Uh, which the website is uh, dosforever.com. And it's a DOS, the number four ever.com. And uh, like the whole, like there's a whole web blog on there about how this entire thing is designed. And, and, and I think every prototype had a number, but the only ones you've been able to purchase is three and six. So I've had three for a long time and I ended up buying six. When I bought three, gosh, I bought it in 2013, I believe. Uh, So it's been a very long time since I built that, that, project uh so i just over the weekend since this was a long holiday weekend i was like okay i got myself a kit to build which i'm I'm super giddy about it was it was a bunch of fun it's been a while since i've it's it's been a long while since i've built something that was someone else's design where i didn't have to worry about all the stuff i just had to follow instructions and that is the whole point of this little topic here is i guess my opinion on the right way to do instructions and uh if you have a chance, go to dosforever.com and just download the instructions for this uh, for this project, the U-Tracer V6. If if you have to write instructions, I say this is a great place to look at, a great uh, PDF file to just kind of leaf through and and see like this is a fantastic way to tell someone how to build a thing. Now, now not every little like task that's in these instructions are are like the best possible like. It, the, things could have been designed a little bit differently, but the actual manual is great. Like it's a full on like uh manual that comes with the, with the device. It's an actual book. It's an actual book. And it's designed such as like when you're done, you put this on the shelf. Like you don't throw away the book or like just throw it away. Uh, so, so here's the thing. It's an entire instruction manual that has a full table of contents, but every thing is broken out into sections so the board was designed to be logically laid out into individual chunks that are they don't overlap so you build the board in pieces the design is is anal enough that all the reference designators within a particular section have like a chunk of numbers so it's like r40 through r60 are part of this chunk and there's a there's a very nice clean section in the instructions where you build that that part and then you immediately go and test it. In fact, every every chunk is like there's a build phase and then a test phase. So as you evolve this thing as you're building it, you're testing it as you go. So you don't just build the entire board. Yeah, you bring it online slowly. So it'll be things where like you're testing the RS-232 connection and you make sure you get certain uh, communications on your computer or you make sure that it's failing a particular way as opposed to failing catastrophically. Like actually this is a section where like you do make it fail, but it's supposed to fail that way. Uh, And it's, and it's nice. And then you install the microcontroller and a few of its components and then it receives a string and it talks back and things. So yeah, each, each section of this is, is, a build section and then a test section. And at the end of it, there's a full calibration section. But but by the time you reach the calibration section, you've already tested every single individual point on this. So you already know that the calibration is basically going to go well. The calibration is just bringing it all into spec. Uh, mm-hmm. and, then, uh, and then at the very end of the testing or the, the entire construction manual, there's a whole thing like a few pages of like, okay, now you're done building the board. 
how do you build the enclosure? And it doesn't tell you exactly how to build the enclosure, but it does say like, okay, these are things you should do to avoid oscillations. Here's good practices in terms of wiring and things. Um, because the, the original designer knew that everyone was going to put it in their own enclosure and do it their own way. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good information on it. And on top of that, like in the calibration section, as you calibrate it at the end of the calibration section, there's a whole page where you can, you know, store all of your calibration values in your construction manual in case your computer bites the dust and you ever need to reinstall the software and stuff. And I understand that like all of these things I'm saying are either they seem intuitive or it's like, okay, come on. There's nothing special about that. What I, what I'm getting at is it's super, super refreshing and nice to see it all done well in one spot. Like I built this entire board, um, in probably five or six hours on a Saturday. And it was some of the most fun I've had in a long time because there wasn't like annoying troubleshooting. There wasn't a lot of like, what do I do here? It was just very nice, like hand holding throughout the entire thing. You didn't have to make logic jumps. And I didn't have to dig around in a GitHub repository or like pull up layouts to be like, okay, well, this was actually wrong or this part should actually be here kind of thing. It's just the the, the design was clearly meant to be built. Uh, like in the original design of the PCB, the, the designer knew that they wanted people to hand build this at home. And so they provided good instructions, but also the design like goes along with the instructions very well. It, mm-hmm. I'm, I know I'm kind of gushing on it, but my, my whole point with all of this is if you're designing a project to be built by somebody else, um, and, like, and I'm saying not like a contract manufacturer, like if an individual or something like that. Let's say you're making like a thing that goes on Tindy or you're making uh, like a, I don't know, Kickstarter kind of thing. I think this is a great, place to go look at how to do it well and and how to like reduce frustration it's like this is this is very much the design was thought of from the very beginning as somebody else will build this they need to be able to do it well so same thing with the documentation side of it absolutely there's there's a lot of projects that i'll say majority of projects documentation is like the last thing that gets done yeah so it's always rushed it's never from the beginning thought of as an outcome that comes with the project, right? Whereas clearly in this case, like that instruction manual is like an heirloom. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I'm going to go put this on my shelf and I can reference it whenever, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I ever need to calibrate the thing again, like I don't have to go search online. I have this construction manual. It steps me through really simple on top of that. It's it's very obvious that this was important to the designer because there's a there's a section in here that says you know thank you to X Y Z and X Y Z I don't remember their names but somebody's names for going through and proofreading every little bit like I'm sure that he he had people build this and proofread it to adjust it and make sure that it's right I think that's really important um, and and so, sorely lacking in a lot of projects nowadays where mm-hmm. it's like. It's almost like, uh, like, well, I put the design files out. You should be smart enough to be able to put this together, right? That's a personal attack on me. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that's GitHub mentality. Like, you should just be able to read the header on my on my .h file and <laughs> and get it right. Well, that doesn't work in in hardware, or or if it does, no. like it does in like the most simplest sense. But if you're yeah. if you're making anything that needs to have any kind of precision to it. 
I think it's uh, I think it falls apart and becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, it might be. Um, well, I what I do. I'm, at least I'm. Uh, what I do is I I start with like. I don't know how many people actually write this down either. Uh, it might be more of a. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess. But what I do, what I always do, because I always start my documentation when I start my board design. Hmm. And I'll be like, okay, what does the board need to do? Which is like, that's like the first thing you, th- why are you designing this board, right? That's part of your documentation. You know, why, oh, this board needs to control a pinball machine, for example, right? What does it need to do? How does it need to do that? Well, you need the drive coils. You need, to, and like, that's all your documentation. And once you start filling that setup out early, as you design your circuits, you can fill in the gaps in that documentation until you're done. Right. Instead of having to rush at the end. Um, and I, I don't think it's that important for like PCB. I'm talking about as a contract manufacturer. Like if you give a bomb and then like a layout to someone for a, to a contract manufacturer, they should be able to build it most of the time. Like unless there's something crazy. in there. Oh, absolutely. Especially if um, it's SMD. Yeah. It's, um, it's when you start doing build box that like, okay, now it's starting to get more complicated because most build boxes are more than just like a box and four screws. Right. Um, gaskets, waterproofing, conformal coating, et cetera. Um, they get way more complicated. Well, and um, then and then the step after that, anytime that anyone builds goes all the way to build box step, they almost always have some kind of testing to go along with it. And that and te- oh man, because that's testing what I've been goes, doing the most. Yeah, that's what I've been doing most at Macrofab recently. And uh, I say recently, it's like the past year and a half <laughs> um, or two years, actually, at this point. And uh, yeah, just testing does feel like an afterthought to a lot of teams. Mm. And especially like in the introductory phases, like even like customers will come to Macrofab and they uh, will start getting quotes and a lot of stuff. And then like, we're building it and like, oh yeah, there's a test now. It's like, wait, what? Why you didn't tell anyone back when we were like first talking about us building it. Right. And then like, there's like maybe some documentation or none. It's when, uh, when a customer has something like that, you tracer six manual that is like the, the, the clouds are parted and God comes down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and has graced the engineering department at Macrofab. <laughs> oh it's amazing yeah and uh or like the procedure just work like you do the procedure and on the golden sample board and it does like it just works mm-hmm. and you're like oh, oh. <laughs> i remember uh we had them on the podcast oh a long time ago long long time ago um gosh what was their name you probably remember they were MacFab customers they built a little uh things that clipped onto your belt and they would measure your- oh kinetic 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 yeah the, okay yeah. Out of out of my entire career, I've never seen documentation as thorough as theirs, and uh, like they had okay, their build documentation was complete. I think before they even built the first unit, and what I mean by complete is they had they had three D modeled every single stage of their yeah, every single stage was modeled out. Oh my gosh, it was so thorough. Yeah, and so you knew exactly like how to assemble it and. The great thing also too is because they had a lot of fasteners that held this device together. Yeah. And they had a torque rating for everything, which oh is Oh my God, love it. Like don't put 
this is going to start being a rant on like bad instruction manuals. feels like don't put Titan too snug or anything like that. Cause that what snug means is different to anyone else. Right. Put a torque rating or a, yeah, put, just put a torque. And if it's just tighten the snug, take a torque wrench or torque screwdriver and just, just come up with a number no, that, no, no. that you no, I, feel is a pro. I, I wouldn't even no. say come up with a number. T- uh, tighten to what you think is snug and then measure that. Yeah, and there's your snug. <laughs> yeah, there's your snug. Um, you can like look up like all the mechanical properties of whatever plastic and thread forming screws you're doing or whatever. But if if it's not mission critical for your design, like just tighten it to snug of what you think it is uh, tight. Um, uh, <laughs> then just measure whatever that was. Right. And Tight, just call tighten it the strip and back off a quarter turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Torque to yield and back off. Yeah, right? were, yeah. <laughs> Nothing tighter than My, strip. What, yeah. Cross-threaded. Nature's luck tight. Yeah, ensure cross-threaded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't you just cannot beat good set of documentation. Um and 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 so so something we've been doing at work that I, I think has been working well and I like this. The engineering department, when we're about to release a new product to production, when we're gearing up for that, let's just say that. Um, so let's say we have our design locked in, we're happy with it, and we're ready to start bringing the other teams in. Like I'll bring the uh, the QC and testing teams in like the manager from that. And I will show them the product. I'll tell it, tell them everything it does. And then I will show them my documentation for the test procedure, which I, so the engineering team has begun writing the test procedure ourselves. And we write like the end all test procedure. And what I mean by that is like, we put every bit of information we possibly could into it. It seems really tedious, but like we, load up the test procedure and then what we do is we sit down with the the qc techs and we we have them do it and we train them how to do it then they take our extreme test procedure and they boil it down for the language of their team because they know how their team works and they know the critical numbers in there and what's nice about it is let's say they get into production and they find that things are not going well or or whatever instead of going to the engineering team they can come they can go back to the document we wrote that has all the information in it and they can adjust their documentation to, uh, to address whatever's going on. Maybe they mm-hmm. weren't, maybe they weren't calibrating a certain point, uh, to a, to the proper tolerance or something like that. Uh, well that's written down in, in the engineering test procedure. So I kind of like that distilling it to the point, like we make sure that there's certain things that are like, you know, you, you must do. And I'd like, we'll highlight those, but I might give Important more information section, right? I might give more yeah. in, in, information about a particular thing that the testing team doesn't necessarily need to know, but maybe if they run into an issue, they can reference that as opposed to like, you know, call in the engineering department anytime something goes wrong. Um, I, th- I think more over communication is better than under, uh, oh, 100%. when it comes to documentation. Yeah, more is better. Um, I like to do. So this is more like like corrective action reports or stuff like that, because I write a lot of those, too. Um, it, it's like I, I, I always do a summary. Because you also have to think about your audiences, because an, an engineer is going to read the whole document, right? 
Um, so I always like to write a summary. It's like in like three sentences or less. This is the gist of what the paper is about. Because yeah. then it could be like 10 pages long, right? Right. But then at the bottom, at the end of it, you have a conclusion that you write the same kind of thing, like three or four. That's kind of like a little bit more like you've read or skimmed it. Here's a little bit more. And then just like a list of uh, of uh, like your recommendations on what we should do about this thing. Hmm. Um, so I, I tend to write my documentation for test that way too, is like, I'll have like high levels and then in there, I'll break it down like step by step. But that way the, the, the assembler team basically has a starting point of like for their stuff. Um, and uh, and I do that like if there's something like critical, like let's say this needs to be torqued to X spec and it's like and you have to hold it upside down so that the electrons fall in it for the right way. <laughs> like I put that in like the note, a big old like this is important to do it this. You have to do it. Even though it looks silly, do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's one of those. um uh If someone's just glancing at it, they might not. Th- for some reason, they might not think that's very important to do it that specific way. You know, that's a that, that makes a good point. Uh, I I don't know how you know every company would handle that situation differently. But if you don't have an established method of dis, of telling your teams that, like, and and I'm saying a method that is universal across your whole company, I think that's mm-hmm. worth establishing. Like, instructions are open for a small amount of interpretation. Because, uh, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, it does it make sense to hold the screwdriver in your right hand and and do whatever action in your left hand, or does it make sense to do the? It's it, it's nice to develop a method that everyone understands that if the documentation says do it this way, you must 100% do it that way. Yeah, it it really depends um, because you're right. Um, you as the engineer are not going to be thinking of like ways to optimize building these, these devices that you're, you're designing. Um, there could be a production engineer that does, you could be a, uh, or there could be a production engineer that does that, or just someone who's been building stuff for their entire lives is going to be better equipped, uh, uh, better equipped, um, experience wise, uh, at, at doing that stuff. So, Part of that too is sitting down with what you're saying, sitting down with the team and I will hand a documentation off and let's say the kit, the testing kit or assembling kit or whatever, and then just watch them build the first couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I take notes on that too. This is like, okay, this step is not clear enough or this step is way too clear because that can happen. Yeah. Like, like you take, you're taking too long because like you're just following everything too, to the, uh, too much to the T. Yeah, yeah, and so going through that and then trimming or and adding information, um, and you can't just do one. You have to do. I'd like to do like ten because the first couple they're still like looking at the instructions like line by line, right? And then they've learned it, and then they're only kind of glancing for like at the pictures, yeah. make sure what step they're on, and then by the end, most time they're not even looking at the instructions anymore, and you can see how that process works in full speed in quotes, full speed. Right. 
as close to full speed as you can be after 10. Yeah, De- depends yeah. on the product. Depends on the product. But usually about 10 is they've you, they've learned the, the process mentally. Yeah. They don't have to really look at the instructions anymore. And then you can see like what steps were not needed and what steps were that need more clarification, that kind of stuff. Right. We've talked about this many, many times. You just can't beat good documentation. No, you can't. Like it's it it's just ah, spend the time. Yeah. You know, uh, one other uh, in relation to that, uh, what I was talking about there a moment ago, like informing your team on things that are non-negotiable. You have to do it this way. Like one of the negotiable. <laughs> one of the ways I do that with. Um, uh, my pick and place operator is we in our um, in our documentation we have two lines where part numbers can go for uh, for individual components that go on a mm-hmm. pick and place. If those two lines match and they have the same part number in them, that means you are not allowed to use anything but that part. It like so. In other words, like if it's like oh. a, if it's like a special zener, there's no substitutes allowed. But if if those two lines don't match, or if a part number is in one of the, like like take for instance like a TLO seven four op amp. Well, there's different grades of TLO seven fours. There's you, you know there's different variants, different flavors. If I don't care, and it just says TLO seven four, use any of them because I know any of them will work. But if I have a special op amp that I know, or a zener, or like a voltage reference, or where it has to be that those two part numbers match. And my pick and place operator knows that if those match, I have to place that part. Interesting way to convey that information. Yeah, it just if with the way that DipTrace actually exports the uh, the ah. files, it works out really well for doing that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so that's why I was saying like figure out what works for your company and make those. You know, we're lucky because we use one EDA tool and like it's universal for all of our stuff, so we can make little rules like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so um, over the weekend, this long three day weekend, um, the uh, got to work on Project Snacky finally. Oh, and, nice! Uh, yeah, yeah. So I got the uh, PCB assembly all completed, soldered everything up Saturday uh, morning, and. Uh, so you were talking about, you know, bringing stuff up like when I, I just built the whole thing. Yeah. 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 One, one go. I built the whole thing in one go. Um, I did safely in quotes, bring it up, I guess, because um, it, it runs off. What is it? 24 volt AC. There's like a transformer that's inside the snack machine. So Project Snacky is I'm redesigning the electronic side of a snack machine to then stuff. Stuff will be more apparent in about you being all cryptic about it. Yeah, in about a month and a half, people will, will know what it is. Um, and uh, got the board finally built up. And uh, to bring it up, I didn't want to just like plug the transformer into it because it is like a 120 volt to 24 volt step down transformer inside snack machine, but it's got like a what is it, a three amp fuse on the or is it five amp? Five amp fuse on the primary side, and then on the secondary side is a three amp fuse. Three amps is still a lot of power to yeah. like bring up a semiconductor board with. And I'm like, well, I don't really have a way to give it 24 volts uh, AC and current limit that. But I'm like, but it doesn't matter. 
It's yeah, just it's a rectifier. It just has a rectifier. Yeah. So you just put 24 volt DC on it and it's fine, right? Minus uh, the drop. Yeah. So, so yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I just put my power supply and put like, you know, started at like a, a tenth of an amp and it powered up just fine. Nice. And I uh, checked all the rails and the 12 volt rail was 12.0 and then the uh, 5 volt rail was 5.0. I'm like, ah, oh, perfect. So, uh, so beers are on uh, other guys, right? Yeah, beers are on the other guys for the first round. And uh, um, everything seems to be talking. I just I wrote just enough code to like, does the real-time clock talk? Yes. Does the, yeah, does everything talk? Now, I haven't tried to vend anything yet because um, I'm finishing up all the chassis wiring inside the snack machine first um, before I do that part. But I don't see any reason why it won't work, you know. Everything's been tested um, on the bench. Right. And uh, I did get the. Um, I had a, I bought a kiosk receipt printer. Oh, what was the model number? Like TO2 something. It's by a company called Custom, which is kind of a weird name for a company. Okay. And uh, it took a bit to find the driver because it's. It comes up as a printer, but you need like a special driver for it. It's kind of weird, I guess. Because most of the time, like, you don't have to, on Windows at least, you just plug in a printer and it works. Um, at least modern Windows. Back in the day, that was a little different. But nowadays, you plug in a printer and it works. This was not like that. Um, had to get a right driver. It does work, though. Um, got that installed. I basically took out the coin return at the bottom and then cut the hole a little bit bigger and then put the receipt printer in there. Um and then uh what's, the, what's some the micro- receipt printer for? If you vend something, then you print a receipt? Uh I don't know what I'm gonna use it for yet. <laughs> I thought it was a good idea to install one though. Okay, that's great. I love that. Yeah. It was um we were doing like a big old like uh like what's a good way to put not oh I had some friends over to work on it, basically. I was trying to think of like a name for that kind of events, but. Build um, party? <laughs> build party, yeah, sure. And we were just coming up with random ideas for um, for what it could have. And someone mentioned a receipt printer. And so I went on like, we were like looking up on like receipt printers that you can buy. We, you need something a little more industrial than like when it sits on a counter because you need to like panel mount it and needs to handle like people poking crap out of it. And uh, I found a kiosk one on eBay and I had no idea it would work at the time. It had USB. I'm like, it's got USB. It says it works with windows. Don't know what that means yet. And uh, I, I threw an offer to the person because the person wanted like a hundred something dollars for it. It's like a $250 printer. I offered uh, like 69 bucks. The person accepted it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, was able to get that on order. And when it showed up, I like plugged it in. And I'm like, like I almost completely forgot I ordered it. Yeah. <laughs> and was able to find the driver and make it work. Got it installed. So I don't know exactly what we're going to use it for, but it's got it. So, so okay, this is going to Vegas. Are you worried Maybe. about uh, vandalism? We're taking the precautions. Oh, okay. So, 
There's only that's so the I know that I, I and and here's the thing. There's a lot of cryptic stuff going on here. I don't know virtually anything about that. I don't I don't know any more than you the listener does other than like Parker's like asked me questions about like filters and power supplies and uh, and was even was cryptic about like I'm like, like what's like, it for and he's like I can't tell code. you. It was like oh thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know much about this. I hey, just yeah. It's that, a that power supply works, that people by will the way. get some things out of and Parker and team are trying to add extra jazz to a vending machine. Yeah, extra jazz to the vending machine. The the power supply part works great. Like cool. there's like n- almost no ripple on it, which is not needed for a vending machine. I was about machine, to say like, okay, it's a vending machine. <laughs> so nice though. <laughs> Scanning um, electron vending machine. Yeah. <laughs> um. So maybe uh, by next podcast, I'll have like most of the code on the firmware side done. And the motor's and, actually uh, turning? Yeah. Because the big thing is, because how it works is the motors have a switch in it. And you would say, oh, you just read when the switch trips. And that's like one rotation. It's like, no, that's not how. That's too easy. Um, it actually uses a switch in the motor to disengage a resistor. And so the motors t- pull less current every rotate, like it in one rotation. I don't know what the, it's probably like 10 degrees or whatever. In one rotation, it'll burn like, they'll pull like 120 milliamps. And then for 10 degrees, they pull like 110 milliamps. And you have to detect that fall in the current. And when you detect that, when you detect that edge, that's one rotation. And so you stop. And then when you want to vend again, you turn it on wait for it to go high and then wait for the edge. So, And, and all the motors are matrix together, right? Yeah. It's all matrix together. Do, are it's you like, having to rewire that or is that all like done? You bought that good. That's all good. Yeah. Oh, okay. I like replicated. Well, overkill replicated, I guess. Cause like the stock motor controllers are like Darlington transistor arrays is like it and like a shift register. Mm-hmm. And I have like proper MOSFETs. Oh, <laughs> like like you can pump so much current through those motors, but they're only going to pull like like two hundred. You want this thing max. to be bulletproof? Well, not just that. Just I had those circuits designed already, so yeah. I just went blink into my design. Yeah, why not? And like, sure, if I was going to build thousands of these, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I'm building one, and I had those. I'm like, oh, I already have these MOSFETs on hand, and all these parts like like there's a power supply module on it that's like eighty dollars i had a couple laying around from a leftover from a project so i'm like oh into my design right right yeah so that's why it's got like no ripple because it's got like a really nice isolated 50 uh, 12 volt dc power supply in it (laughs) completely unnecessary but fun nonetheless Oh, oh yeah um one thing I got to start doing is got start, I got to install some micro switches. Um, I'm turning the, you know, how they have a button on a snack machine to get your coins back. Oh yeah, the coin return. Well, I'm turning that into the carriage return that you can like enter. Oh. So I got to put like a mechanical. I got to put a switch on it because it's it works all mechanically like inside the machine itself. Um, and I've ripped all that stuff out because I don't need. I don't want it to accept money at all. Like it's going. If when it goes to Vegas, you don't want to make sure that you can't put any money in it. 
Um, so I got some big old chunky micro switches and I had, I've been having one on my desk for like it's probably the last week now. These are like the electrical engineer fidget spinners. Oh, like I yeah. cannot stop clicking, clicking them. Ah, tech switches are the best. <laughs> so, um, okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Can I take a guess or two at, at things? Or is this just like a tight lip? Not going to answer any questions. Um, you can take guesses. I'm not going to answer anything though. Okay. Okay. Well, so it, it has a keypad on the front, right? Yeah. And, and there will be a screen, right? So yes, a user can interface with this vending machine and via the keypad. Correct. So correct. Is this like a situation where like, because it, you, you just said it's not accepting money, so it'll accept codes of some sort for people to Possibly. be able to get something out of the machine. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, this team makes badges, so I'm assuming that the vending machine is filled with badges? Could be. Could be? Okay, okay. So I, be. I'm, I'm generally in the ballpark of of. That's uh, like bullet point one on what this machine can do. <laughs> I, you got to start we're, somewhere. There's a reason why we're redoing all the electronics in it. Well, instead of just like hacking like the... Because the, one, one of the ideas we had is like if we just wanted to vend stuff on codes, so to speak. Yeah. Let's say you want to type in a code and vend. Yeah. Um, we could have just basically did a man middle attack on like the keypad. Yes. Man and tech is like way overblown what it is. Like put a microcontroller that reads the keypad and then spits out the correct code, the code to the, the yeah. original board. Right. Like that would be like the easy way of doing it. And then just set, cause you can just set the vending machine to be like, everything is free. Just give it the right code. Yep. Like a seven and then it will vend a seven. Right. Um, Th- there's more involved in, in this, in snacky, yeah, much more involved. Uh, the, the part that I was curious about is, okay, well, and, and it, it, the, here's the thing. It could still be that way. It's just, how do you get the code for whatever gizmo or widget or prize is on the inside? Uh, but the other thing is you could also make it. And, and I'm just guessing here. You could also make it where somebody has to hack your vending machine to get the prize gizmo widget uh, or uh, encourage people to, to do that. So I don't, I don't know what you're going at. I'm just sort of like grasping at straws on, on things that I've certainly seen you talk about in the past of just like ideas mm-hmm. and, and looking at your, the board you made. Cause you posted that. <laughs> yeah. And, I and, the board. and, and, and that has, there's a lot of like, hackability there let's put it that way yeah yeah there's a lot of um uh safeguards I, we'll talk more about it when it's all done um but there's a lot of safeguards in that too um because it is going to vegas and uh we want to make sure that one um nefarious people do not ruin the fun for others you're it's going to defcon that's like the whole point. I said Vegas, not DefCon. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> what's the one thing that happens in, in Vegas in August of every year? <laughs> so, so, okay, I, I'm the one saying it. Parker, Parker is not the one saying it. 
But yeah, we I, I I spent a lot of time designing the hardware and um the physical physical security of the device of of the snack machine to reduce nefarious people from ruining the fun of others. Yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah, you don't you don't want someone breaking in and taking all the prizes. I'm not worried about that. I'm more worried about I'm I'm more worried about people ruining the fun for others. Like we can always put more of whatever is in there, right? Oh, you're saying like going in there and like damaging it purposefully. Yeah, yeah. Um ruining the fun for others cuz it's part of I mean I know it's Defcon and it's all about, you know, hacking that kind of stuff, but um you know, there are some people that that are assholes. Every group's got assholes. So <laughs> just like engineers have opinions, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm actually surprised that our Slack, our public Slack channel has like no assholes. Our Slack channel, I we've talked about this multiple times. There's like some weird purity that's going on there. And I'm not trying to elevate it beyond anything. It's just for how long the Slack channel has been around, for how many conversations happen there, the amount of moderation we've had to do is pretty minimal. Uh and and like it's been really civil and on point and uh, i don't know it's it seems unlike internet things yeah actually i'm trying to think of any kind of thing any kind of moderation i had to do i think all i had to do was just one topic it was starting to get a little too political and i'm like y'all can keep talking about it but just don't make it that part and guess what they everyone went sure and then it carried on yeah, I've seen I've seen a few things that were like on the edge of unsavory, but uh, nothing that like needed to be deleted or anything like that. Hmm. So, but like very few. And and the thing is, like, it's mostly engineers helping out other engineers. Yeah, yeah. And just talking about random weird stuff. And yeah, it's a very wholesome Slack channel. Let's keep it that way. Yeah, let's keep it that way. If you want to keep it that way, macfab.com slash slack. Come and join us. We're almost at 700. Yep. Um, so that's Project Snacky. Um, oh, uh, so we were talking about this last week a little bit. Um, we're talking about like different uh, scales of uh, semiconductor manufacturing, like 45 nanometer, like how small stuff is. Um, and we were trying to remember like how small can we actually build stuff now? And I think we were like saying like seven, apparently right. it's five nanometer. Yep. And NVIDIA is, which is a graphics processor company. Um, they're fabulous though. They just do the design and then they contract out the design. Um, which is amazing how much revenue that company makes to be fabulous. It's just kind of interesting. Um, but um, Stephen found this this article about their new 4000 series that's supposed to rumored to come out this fall. And it's going to be the new five nanometer process that uh, TSMC has. And apparently NVIDIA is going to spend up to, so it's up to in the article, $10 billion just to secure their supply chain and their line and their space in line at just TSMC. I don't know if TSMC is going to be building any of the actual boards, but they got to build the chips at least. 
Yeah, uh, that's, the it's certainly processor. for the processors. Yeah. Yeah. $10 billion to secure just the processor. Line. You know, and that's what it takes uh, to get in line with Apple, AMD, and Qualcomm and a, bu- a bunch of these other big players. You know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, play the game, <laughs> $10 billion will help you get there. <laughs> I think $10 billion helps you do almost anything. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because the way it's it's written is like they say $10 billion is used to secure their position, which kind of makes it seem like, oh man, like y- you, you have to have that kind of cash flow to play the TSMC game nowadays, which... I guess for that process, five millimeter process or millimeter nanometer process. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's where it's at, which is, it's crazy to think about that kind of a scale for, for, you know, for graphics cards that go in computers. It's not like this is medical or anything, uh, or like aeronautics or anything like that. This is graphics cards. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting that, um, I wish I knew, is that 10 billion, gets them their chips or is that just like extra they had to pay to make sure that they have production oh no 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 that, that's not that's not just like my ticket to stand in line <laughs> that's yeah. that's their product could be yeah we will see huh interesting i'm reading this uh, it's uh, a pc games um article and i it's kind of skimpy on on details but at the bottom here there's something called the eu chips act which i've never heard of before which was earlier this year i wonder if this is similar to the ah yeah it's very similar to the american the u.s united states what, what do they call it what was that act? That it was probably that? also the Chips Act. <laughs> Could be. It sounds very similar, like plans to invest blank dollars into building fabs in Europe. Uh, yeah, uh, the Chips Act, creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors for America Act. Of course. Chips, chips yeah. <laughs> the European Commission also proposes investment in mega fabs. Not to be confused with macro fabs. Well, isn't there a gigafab now? That's the ba- that's, that's batteries, right? Is it Austin? Oh, the gigafactory. That's what it was. Nevada. I think there's one in China and then one in Germany too, right? Something like that. I should drive by the Austin one when I go to like a football game just to see how big a, a gigafab is. Well, I'm I'm looking at. Oh wait, okay, so what? Is that is it in um is it commissioned yet? It, it's almost it's built. It's like producing cars. It's not a lot of cars, but they're building cars. Oh, it is not that far. Like it's in Austin. It's like uh on the what's what's the freeway that goes around it? Uh doesn't really have a uh FM uh 973 or whatever that is. Oh, I don't know what that that's is. kind of that's kind of like a, a loop around, but regardless, it's like not very far from the city. I thought it was kind of like outside the city limits, but man, if you want a city that has insane traffic and want to live there, Austin, (laughs) people make fun of like Houston, Texas for traffic, but Austin is some other level of traffic. Yeah. 
A lot of people uh, in a small amount of area. A lot of people in a small amount of area, and they haven't increased um, infrastructure to handle cars, which some people might think that's a good thing. I'm not arguing it's a bad or good thing. It's just if you live in Austin or want to go live there, traffic is insane. So plan to live your life accordingly to that. Um, It's a lot like L.A. traffic where, like, you'll be just stopped and you have no reason, no idea why. Because that's always the thing with Houston traffic is, sure, it there's like always traffic, but at least it always moves. I've never been stopped on a freeway in, in Houston. Because that's my experience. And I haven't been in, because you live in Denver. Um, I haven't really lived in, or been to Denver enough to experience bad traffic, I guess, if there is it there. I, you know... I don't experience a lot. We got lucky because I don't even have to take any freeways to get to work. And oh, almost nice. everything I need is around the house. And so it's a 20 minute. Oh yeah. Drive. You have a huge shopping center. That's like literally like a hundred yards away from your house. Yeah. I can almost walk to it. Um, well I could. Yeah. It's yeah. So we, we got lucky. I don't see the bad traffic here, but we've, yeah. we've Denver's grown enormously in the last decade. Uh, what is it? 25, 26% since the uh, census in 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is uh, quite a bit. And uh, yeah, they haven't, um, you know, being a, a city engineer, I'm sure is a very tough job uh, and predicting how things are going to go in the future. It always seems like construction happens long after it feels like you feel like it should. Um, and they're doing that to some of the freeways here, like ripping, ripping up big freeways and redoing them. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and there's not very many freeways here. So you can, you can understand what that, no. the impact that has. Oh yeah. It's not, it's not like Houston where like if a, a freeway gets chopped up, it's like, Oh, okay, well I'll just go one of the other like eight. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> other eight. Well, that's, that's one of the problems with Austin it's part of it is is houston sprawl right houston's just a huge sprawling city yeah never ends. and uh but how the freeways are structured are it's quite brilliant um because like you have these ring ring roads but there's like three of them mm-hmm. there's actually like a fourth and fifth one in construction right now as well and uh so it's easy to get, it's kind of like a spoke wheel, right? It's kind of easy to get around on the freeways. And what, what was it? I can't remember. You said this a um, long, long time ago. Where like Houston's model for roads is you only have to remember like three roads. To it's get three roads. Yeah. Yeah. One road to get out of where you're going and that gets you to a freeway. And then that gets you to another road. That's your destination. You need three roads and you can almost get anywhere. Yeah. It's so um, easy to get around in Houston. Yes. I think it's like for me, I've always found it's like four-ish. Well, okay. If you're get getting somewhere. out of a neighborhood, it's four. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm saying I view getting just to a freeway yeah. is like that's step one. Regardless of where you're at. Because usually if you live somewhere, you know how to get to your nearest freeway, right? But then it's like after that, okay, what exit or what other part of town do I need to get to exit there? And then you have 
one or two crossroads max to get somewhere. Usually mm-hmm. how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, man, L- California's freeway system is not like that at all. <laughs> Especially South Cal. I'm, I'm mostly thinking about like north of LA area. Um, it's just, yeah, not like that at all. <laughs> um, but there's downsides like like building more building more freeways does not alleviate traffic. It just offsets traffic for later. Because all what happens is it enables more sprawl. Mm-hmm. So people live farther out. Um so I don't know. Yeah, as you're saying, a city a city engineer or city planning is probably one of the hardest jobs ever because there's no way to make anyone happy, right? Oh no, it's all it's all compromises. Yeah, all hundred percent all the time. Also, like I, I I looked into it once the the mathematics that goes behind studying a single intersection and it and that's intersection relation to all the intersections around it and then all of the ones around it the inputs into a into your equation for a single intersection is nuts the kind of things you have to take into account and it be and end up ends up becoming this disgusting differential equation that is basically impossible to solve so i mean you basically have to model it and just figure things out uh and and take best guesses you know that's why yeah i I don't envy city engineering (laughs) no that's got to be tough all right one last topic um i bet you that whole topic of like city planning and traffic and freeways that's going to be like huge in our slack channel like people are going to go yeah do it i want to see it um, but, uh, on the other side of like less engineering, I guess this is more of a design project. And Steve and I were talking about this before the podcast and it kind of came up where, um, I just finished building, I, I say just, it's been a couple months. I built my dad for his retirement, uh, a smoker. I built him a smoker and I basically took two smokers and then like, that I found on the side of the road and like chopped them up and put them back together. We talked about this a couple po- uh, a couple months ago on the podcast, and uh, and what sucks about that is I want a smoker now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And um, sure I can go down to Galveston, but it's if I'm just going to go down there to smoke a brisket, that's kind of a waste of gas, right? I'm wasting it's like four hours of travel there and back. This to smoke meats. So I'm like, okay, I need to go build my own now. And uh, I was like, okay, do I just like wait to find some more smokers on the side of the road? Or how do we do this? And uh, Steven came up with the idea of like, what if we just like made it a kit that you can like order a lot of the parts on like send, cut, send, and then some parts from like McMaster. Um, Cause a lot of smokers, people build out of like just stuff they find, like propane tanks. They'll cut one up and, and put it together, um, which is great and all. If you live in a place like Texas that has oil and gas industry and has the steel yards that have that material, like most steel yards won't even have that in the United States. Like I can go down like 15 miles away from my house and I can buy 24 inch diameter pipe. That's like quarter inch. Yeah, wall. no problem. No and they problem. wouldn't even question it. No, 
They'll, they'll be like, what are you building? A smoker? And they'll like help you load all the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, yeah, bring some And they'll probably be like, them. and they'll probably be like, invite us over when you like make the first person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just a very unique thing to to Texas. Smokers in general are these kind of offset smokers are too. Um, and so Steven and I came up with this idea of what if we like made one out of like flat stock so you can like make the barrel at the big part out of like like make it like a hexagon and then um and to do um and then just like some parts we just would buy like you get like a four inch pipe on mcmaster right stuff that like anyone can just go and click orders and it just shows up at their house and they just weld it together kind of like a welding table um it's like usually your first project when you're building stuff together so then you build this table and then the next thing you build is like a big smoker yeah and then make it so all the like the pieces fit together with like interlocking joints and all that stuff and um i think it's a really good idea it's also it's super forgiving because if you if your welds are not amazing whatever it's a smoker you know it's a smoker well you just grind them down too right <laughs> right um so i think we're going to i think what we should do is design just the barrel part which is the biggest part and just see how much that costs to make <laughs> yeah it's eight hundred dollars at steel. send cut send yeah okay yeah so laser cut steel like quarter it's inch just thick. a bunch of rectangles just a bunch of rectangles but they're big they're big and, and they're thick so four feet long and probably like eight ish inches depth wise. So I think we should design the barrel mm -hmm. part and then figure out how much that costs. Yeah. Cause, cause if that and, is, it, it, uh, let's say that comes out as, I don't know. I'm just being goofy here. Let's say that the entire barrel comes out as a, as a hundred dollars. It's like, oh, okay, great. Go forward with the project. Yeah, but if I, that comes way out more than that, yeah, no, but if that comes out as $800, it's like, well, probably not yeah um because you can buy a really nice um, nice smoker that's an offset smoker that's got thick wall and all that stuff like two to three grand is what you'd want to pay for one like you can get cheaper ones of course um but for like a good heavy duty offset smoker that's going to be like you know passed down to your grandparent uh, grandkids not grandparents would be weird because you're <laughs> passing it up but I guess I did that. I gave it to my you, dad. Yeah, you did. I passed it up. Yeah. Um, like you're going to want good steel and uh, a well, well designed one. And uh, so that's one of the things is like start looking at parts, getting. Um, yeah, I think we designed the barrel with like the lid. And uh, figure out from there. Yeah, I think I think it'd be fun. I, I want to model it all in fusion and uh, yeah basically yeah like simple shapes things that can be magnetically held together uh maybe even make uh okay so you got the you got the hexagon tube make uh, uh like a frame that it, it, like you can get a frame cut of, uh, from send cut send and so it makes it easier to weld you know something like that uh like oh end you mean pieces. like the the hexagon part yeah well, you got the end pieces, right? Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm saying the end pieces, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can uh, we can write a really fancy instruction manual. Oh yeah. Oh man. Now you're talking my language. Yeah. So that would be fun. I, I also love the idea that like at the end of the day, if you want to 
get this made. You just click buy at Send Cut Send. Like, there's nothing. It's not like we have to put together a kit or anything like that. Of, oh yeah, yeah. Of like it's like here's a all thousand the DXFs. pounds of steel. <laughs> yeah, here's all the DXFs, and yeah. then here's your buy list at like McMaster or whatever, right? Yeah, you know, send cut just, like this happens, and then send cut send starts getting like tons of orders for this <laughs> pallets of steel. Yeah, they might be okay with it. I mean, sure, it's work. I wish they would sponsor. Oh man, send cut send. I love, uh, their services, I, I'd use it almost almost every other week, probably. Yeah, hit us up. Let's make a smoker together. Let's make a smoker together. <laughs> That'd be fun. Maybe we should reach out to them and see if they want to do something. Did I talk about my um, chalk box? I don't know if you, well, I, you certainly talked to me. I don't know if you've talked on the podcast. Yeah, I designed a uh, a camp kitchen, otherwise known as a chuck box uh, in fusion. Is it is it called that because you just chuck stuff into it? I don't know why. Hmm. It's probably actually part of the reason why it's called a chuck box. Okay. Um, and uh, I designed one in fusion. I'm about to. I'm probably going to release the design because you can like it's all parametrically designed. So you, you can just there's like a menu and you can like change numbers and it like recalculates everything. It's pretty sweet. Um, the uh, and then I got cut with send cut send using their like they have, they have a CNC option for like plywood. Um, was not the cheapest, but it all showed up and like. It, it all just like worked. I'm like, oh, that's so nice. I kind of love them because they look like machinist tool chests, but they have like pots and pans and spices. Pots and, and pans and a stove in it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So, um, I'll post a picture on this podcast uh, blog post for it. Because I think I did. I take a picture of it with like stuff in it. Uh, you did, did not, and I got a text of that sometime huh. in the past. Oh, that was before I assembled it. But yeah, I I just kind of like I I actually had it uh uh machined is not the good word for it because woodworking, but CNC cut. I had all the screw holes put into it too, so I can just put screw holes to hold the whole thing together. Just zip together, yeah. Yeah, and it worked out great. Um, but now I got to take it all apart, and I'm gonna epoxy it all together. Um using like West systems epoxy and um, sand it all down, then seal it. So it's all nice and, you know, watertight and then uh, paint it. And I gave, I gave my mom my uh, old boy scout hat and I'm like, find this green color. That's <laughs> when I'm going to paint it. Oh, nice. It's not like boy scout green is a different shade of green. It's not forest green. It's not olive drab. It's a specific green i'm looking it up what is it yeah this, it's got to have like a really specific color yeah like a name but, but i remember in the scouts like everything was painted that color at like scout camp and so i'm kind of like replicating my my scout equipment in all my gear so i'm like well the checkbox has got to be painted this <laughs> This truck box is so much nicer than the one I had back then, though. Or had access to, I should say. Uh, Wikipedia says khaki green. Khaki green. Yeah. Uh, what is it? 
60561D is the hex <laughs> code. <laughs> I guess we should wrap up the podcast with that then. I think that's it. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Parker and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrofab.com slash Slack.